This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Tired of not getting a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hi, it's been a minute, listeners. I'm Jasmine Garst. Today we're doing something really special. We're dropping an episode from our friends over at the Broken Record podcast from Pushkin Industries. On Broken Record, the hosts talk with the musicians you love about their lives, their inspiration, and their craft. Today, we'll hear host and record producer Rick Rubin's conversation with hip-hop legend Nas. Nas dropped one of the most universally loved rap albums of all time in 1994 with Illmatic, and he remains one of the greatest MCs of all time. Few hip-hop artists have maintained relevance over decades based on their skill alone. And Nas's dedication has paid off. King's Disease, his 12th album, won Best Rap Album at the 2021 Grammys. In this episode, you're going to hear Rick Rubin talk to Nas about his earliest experiences with rap in the Queensbridge housing projects where he grew up, how recording King's Disease with Kanye West in Wyoming almost took him out of his zone, and how early beef with Jay-Z made them both stronger rappers. Okay, I'm going to let Rick and Nas take it from here. What's going on, legend? Everything's well. How are you, sir? Yo, this is a, uh, it's an honor to talk to you, man. It's an honor. Same. It's a pl- uh, my pleasure. Always. Anytime I get to see you, it's a good day. Love, man. Tell me about the music in your house when you were growing up. Huh. My mom was playing What You Gonna Do With My Lovin', that's Stephanie Mills, hmm. Patty, you know, all the records that was out. Like, I remember the early 80s records. And then my pops was playing a wide range of, of, of things. He had everything from the radio station with Wolfman Jack. He had... uh Fela and things like that, you know, jazz, um, whatever, Lionel Richie, whatever. All those early 80s records, early 79. Um, I grew up right, right around that time when, like, the these are the breaks and, and rappers delight. I was young, but I was absorbing that stuff. Mm-hmm. Would you say that the music in that your parents played was reflective of the other music that the kids in the neighborhood would be hearing or not necessarily? Not necessarily. You think because of your dad's jazz background? Because the kids, a lot of the kids' parents, I think, were younger than my my parents. A lot of my friends' parents, most of them, were were younger than my parents. And they were playing the music of of their time. I think my pops... My pops, he's from Mississippi, you know, and he get he got everything that was going on out there and what they were playing with the uh, other people's parents and, uh, and the radios was playing, but um, we didn't play that in the house all the time. Nah, it wasn't like that. I didn't own all of those records. When I started buying records, it was it was like I was the record buyer in the house. He had jazz records, but and African records and stuff, but. It wasn't a lot of music like you would think. Do you think that um, having those influences affected your both appreciation of music and the way that you wrote going forward? Yeah, because the sounds was like disco and R&B was, was a thing. And the songs, to me, they were like, um, they were rap songs before they were rap songs. Like Over Like a Fat Rat. And, um, you know, Evelyn Champagne King, to me, they, you know, we would move our head to it like, you know, that's the jam. And that if so when I wanted to, you know, when Sugar Hill Gang had the the Good Times record and they flipped it, it was just rapping. I tried to rap like them. I tried to in my I tried to rap like um, um, Curtis Blow. So that's that's when I first started to feel rap like Curtis and um and those guys, Tila Rock and them. Your guys. 
<laughs> was your first experience of hip hop music from those records or was it in the park first? It was a combination of both. It was a combination because when I was uh, a kid, I would hear all the guys talking about, you know, who was at the center last night and the community center at night turned into, I guess, like a club or sometimes, you know, and in the park, a lot of guys would come out there. I would hear all of these rap legends were in the park and and hear all these stories. Um, so, yeah, it was definitely in the park, but it was a combination. It was park and then somebody's radio. Describe more about like the the um, what was going on in the park and what was going on in the community center. Paint the picture. And uh, I, I just love to imagine what you saw. All right, so with the community center parties, um, I was definitely too young for that. <laughs> I would see all the people going dressed up. If it was winter, they had the sheepskin coats on. They were excited. Like, I thought they were going to some big place. I don't know where. I didn't realize they were going right to the community center, right in the neighborhood. Because yeah. you, you're talking, I'm talking 83, 85, you know, and... In the park, they had, yeah, you know, people would come there and and they have like set up a stage, like I, I don't know, the city would have people come out there, set up a stage and do shows. Like I'm looking at people in costumes and stuff like that, just wild stuff I would see in the parks. And then the jams would happen when when I got when they got to the park jams. You know, my moms didn't want me to go over there, so we could hear it from across the street. We could watch them, even help them carry records. You know, you know, we, we you're going to throw a party, you're going to throw a jam. We see them coming through the block with the equipment. Get out the way, look, get out the way, kids. And we want to, we were excited seeing this happen. They were homemade speakers, all this um, um, wires where they would uh, take electricity from the the street lamp and 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 plug it up to the equipment outside and watch the cops ride around to make sure everything was okay tell them to turn it down and then they leave and then they turn it back up and the cops just got tired of messing with them. They just let it, let it play. So, um, and then I got a little older. I think it was like the end of the community center. I remember, um, there being MC battles in there is MCs from my block. Um, the Illmatic MCs, they were from my block, you know, Sudan and these guys who I looked up to who could, who were really good at what they did I would I would listen to them rap here and there, but um, how much older were they than you? I want to say maybe five years, mm-hmm. maybe wait five, five no, because then I was like maybe about six seven years. Some of them a little older, mm-hmm. but Jeffro D from my building was known for doing needle lifting. You know he didn't even have to; he just knew where to lift the needle. It went. Wow. I don't even think he had headphones on. He just <laughs> knew. And he was legendary for that. The Orr brothers were in my building. They made speakers that were so big, they just would rattle the building. And they were on the first floor. And I was on the fifth floor, but we enjoyed it. It would rattle the building, but because the speakers were so big, they couldn't even get them through the apartment door to take outside. But the sound on it was incredible. It's amazing the um, the homegrown aspects of the hip-hop culture that most people don't know about. You know, most people experience, if they come from somewhere else, if they weren't from New York at that period of time, they experience it as, you know, songs that came on the radio. But there was a whole culture and life around hip-hop music where it's the music was just part of it. it, it there was so much to it. Right, right. Definitely. There was so much to it. This And, you know, the style of clothes everyone was wearing because at the time... You know, Pumas and all these different sneakers was getting taken off your feet. Like if you had if you had a fresh pair of sneakers on, and you come to that park jam, I'd see somebody running. I see people wanting your sneakers. Like just to you know, it's so funny. I was talking to somebody the other day how everybody's iced out now. It's so much better now. You couldn't even wear a gold nameplate back in those days. Just a regular gold thin nameplate. Like razor blade thin on your on your neck, you couldn't even wear. You would have to watch where you go some places with that. So all of that added to it. It the, it put it was in the energy of the music. I think. Mm-hmm. 
When did you first start writing? I think um, early 80s. It was rest in peace to my man, Andre Harrell. I would tell him this all the time. Him and his guy in the group, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, they, they had a story. Mr. Shark in the ocean. Can you find my magic potion? And I was like, wait, how did the story start here and there? And- Mr. Shark, you live in the ocean. You know, Slick Rick with Lottie Dottie. So those 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 people made me like, you know, even uh my man Melly Mel and Raheem, uh Raheem's verse on um the message and Melly Mel, the way he closes it out. Um those though they like put pictures in my mind and I was like, all right, I can write from that perspective, you know, all these guys. Did you did you know that it was something that you wanted to do, like that you were going to dedicate your life to it? You know, I I didn't know it was really possible to really get into the rap game. I know I wanted to. I know I could picture myself in it since. <laughs> I mean, since I first started hearing rap, you know, I, I knew I could picture myself in it. I would hear like tapes by the Cold Crush Brothers, but not really paying attention because even though it was the most popping tape out, to me, I can hear the time in their voice. I can hear the time in the beat, the, the sound. I knew that it wasn't for me at that time. I said, in time will be my time. But I, I didn't pay too much attention to those tapes because I felt like it's like trying to play a kid Frank Sinatra, who I love now. But it's yeah. like, I don't get it. But you get older, you get what they meant at the time. But those were the times I would hear little bit, bits and pieces and still, you know, try to emulate that. What was the first the first uh, record that you heard where it's like, oh, this is, this is not the older kids' music anymore. This is my music. I mean, I knew it when I heard the breaks. Clap your hands, everybody, if you got what it takes by Curtis Blow. Curtis Blow, and I want you to know that these are the boys. It was grown folks' music. It had a disco sound, but the way he commanded your attention on the song, I knew that like, he didn't have to be a singer to demand that type of respect that a singer would demand on a record. The way he spoke, his pronunciation, and what he would do with his voice. And the breakdowns of the song would make me go, okay, this is this could this is a big record. It's not an underground record. It's not a mixtape. It's a it's a record record on a a label that's known. What was the record uh, label? Um, Mercury, I think. Mercury, exactly. That was a known label. So that's when I knew, like, okay, this thing is a real record. How did your parents react to hip hop? My pops was was cool with it. My mom was cool with it too, but I guess she didn't want me and my brother to grow up to be like, like you know, too hard or whatever, or too or hoodlums or, uh, you know, whatever they called it back then. And so she, I would repeat, you know, my son said, Daddy, I don't want to go to school because my teacher's a jerk. She might think I'm a fool and all the kids smoke reefer. I think it'd be cheaper if I, you know, she's like, what? You know what I'm saying? And she's like, nah, that ain't that ain't for you. But I'm like laughing. I'm like, it is. Cause we're all we're all little kids not supposed to be singing these songs, but they so dope around each other. We say we're singing the we're singing the message. You you asked your dad to play on your first record. He played trumpet on your first record, is that correct? Right. How'd that come together? Like the idea of you'd never hear a solo on a hip hop record. How did you know to do it? Well, because it's Pops, you know, Mr. Olu Dara, he is, um, before my time musically, of course, but now here it is, I am with a record deal with Columbia Records. I'm like, yo, yo, this is so cool. Your son's on Columbia Records, Rough House Columbia. Um, I have an album, This Is A Dream that we could do something together. So I called him, you know, and I told him when he got to the studio, I said, play what reminds you of me and my brother and our, our family. 
when we were kids. Just play whatever that feels like to you. Beautiful. And uh, he played that. Beautiful. <laughs> Tell me about getting signed. Tell me about the feeling of what was going on, what you had done at that point, and then... The excitement of that moment. Oh uh, man, it was a uh, it was a moment that I felt like it was coming. I felt like it was it was possible. Um, and when it came, I felt, of course, of course, I'm like I'm happy, you know, beyond happy, because I'm 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 with Columbia Records now. I mean, shout out to Chris Schwartz and Roughhouse. Shout out to Faith Newman who signed me, uh, shout out to MC Search, uh, who helped put that deal together. And I was happy to be involved with so many creative people like those people I named, um, people who were, to me, vets in the music business. So I felt like I was going to be kind of protected, with you know, just with the tutelage and, and from these guys. I felt like I was in a safe situation. So it, it, was, it was like a super dream come true it was it was like this is what we all uh uh, are looking for right here and it's happening great and tell me about the making of the first album the process of it the making of the first album was like um now things are real now the studios are real now now i had worked in power play studios with lost professor years ago um before, well, like two years before I actually got a deal, I've been in Power Play, and that's a serious place. But now it's a, here, my budget, my album, for me. Not just hanging out with Lars Professor. So now I'm here in uh, the House of Metal, Chung King. Now I'm, I'm looking at these plaques on the wall and all these great artists, and the studio is real. The engineer, never met him before, but he's about to be in my life now, and... I'm learning from him and he's learning about me at the same time. So I kind of like a fish to water because of the previous um, um, experience with Lars Professor. And he's telling me not to pop your peas so loud in the microphone. He's telling me how to even stand at the microphone. So I had some experience. And then I was working with him also. So it was like we were both happy because he was on Wild Pitch, cool label. But now here I am on this major label. So we were kind of smiling, laughing, like, okay, this is the way it's supposed to be. So we went to it like, like we was waiting from two years ago to now. I'm 18. I got this deal. It's go time. It was like, we just went. And were the, were the songs written before you went into the studio? Tell me about the, the process of getting the material together. Yeah. Half of the, half of the material was already done. And, when I got to the studio, when I when we started to record, I I came up with a lot of things right there on the spot as well. But I would say about 50% was wrote. And might you write without hearing a beat? Or were, were, do you always write based on a beat? Back then, I wrote to different beats. Like, whatever I thought was a dope record out, I would get the instrumental and just loop that and write to that. Like, whoever's record that I thought was hot. And then when I went to the studio, I would find the timing of the rhyme to that beat, to the new beat, the my actual beat. I would find which rap had the timing that would blend in that beat right. Understood. So you would typically write to a beat that would be not the beat that we hear on the record, but then you would find a beat that would work, a new beat that would work for something you already wrote something else. Exactly. Cool. And some of it, I did get the tracks and write to it like... Um, when Q-Tip produced One Love, I did get that on a cassette tape and took it home to write to it. Um, I did get some of the tracks and in, in right there in the studio, like with Premiere, I wrote some of it right there in the studio. Um, yeah, with L.E.S., my man DJ L.E.S. from my neighborhood who produced the song that my pops is on. 
Um, I wrote that right there on the spot. So some of it was just spontaneous. Others was like pieces of papers that I had, just had a beginning, like maybe like six bars. And I like this six bars and I match it up with another song, uh, another rhyme I had, which probably had like 12 bars. And and then and then I would write the last, you know, uh, four or five bars or whatever. Would you always be writing? Would you always be taking notes in general? Yeah, years ago when I was um, coming out of a teenager into like my early 20s. Yeah. Then I then it just everything just roller coaster. <laughs> so tell me about um the the experience of going from really starting from essentially nothing, not really you you came from the very beginning and you built yourself up to be the number one MC in New York, no, like without question. And um, in your fantasy of what it was going to be like, what your life would be like in success, how different is the reality of success versus the fantasy of success? It's strange. Um, you know, everyone has their own journey. Um at times it was better than I imagined. At other times it was like, what's going on? Like, you know, um, so it would, it would change. It would change. Sometimes it, it, it would really feel like this must be like what, you know, Stevie Wonder was feeling like. This must be like what, what, what Michael was feeling like. You had those moments where there was like, uh, first time at an award show or meeting somebody you never thought you'd meet and they like you, those were, those were really mo- good moments there. So it changed. And then give me an example of something that you thought was going to be really good that turned out not to live up to the... Um, I don't know, man. It was... Um, I don't know. It was certain, it was certain aspects of, of uh, certain people. I thought would be different. And um, they were not the nicest people. But I appreciate the experience. Even though I looked at these people like, I had to realize they're human beings like everyone else. They have their bad days and their good days. Um, You know, realizing people are not superheroes really all the time. You know, these people that you look up to are people. Certain places I went to were smaller than I thought, like TV sets, TV stages, sound stages, or certain television shows, or you know things like that. Have you ever eaten foie gras in real life? I have. I have. Okay, <laughs> I'm just asking because it's it's a funny. It's like we think about uh, rap brags, and that might not live up to their actual. Because uh, I'm not a fan of foie gras. So I <laughs> I had I tried it before, I tried it before, but uh, I'm not a fan. It just okay, sounds good. good. Yeah, is it? It also does sound good in a rhyme. Like just the nature of the the word sounds good. Yeah, it <laughs> sounds good. Tell me about um, spirituality. Have you? Do you have a spiritual practice, or have you ever in your life? Um, there's no real practice. Um, I'm just aware. You know, you're just aware that. We're 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 having a spiritual beings having a human experience, and we're just uh, there has to be more than here, you know, um, and that energy is real, and you just want to keep the energy around you um, good, and 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 you you want to keep because energy lives forever in my mind, you know, I feel like we go on to see the big man upstairs from here. So do what you do here matters on the other side also. How you how do, how do you handle your business? You know, if you have to do something that's not so great to get somewhere great, you know, you just hope the most high forgives you because we're all just on our own journey. So you have to realize that there's a there's karma in everything you do. So you try to keep that when nobody's perfect. You know, I'm not perfect. I'm not going to be, 
you know, on point all the time, but you just hope that I try to stay in the right, the right karma, the right energy. Hmm. Has having kids changed your life? Big time, big time. Yeah, I think my daughter saved my life. She, 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 I was really young when I had her. I was 20 years old. So I, I was, I was a kid. So um, I think she, she made me um, pay attention and say, you got to be here. You can't just throw it all in the wind. You, you have to, you know, be cautious. You got to be here. Uh, my son too, my son as well. Do you get to spend a lot of time with them now? Yeah, especially my daughter. You know, that's, that's like my bestie. That's great. That's, that's my homie right there. She's very, she's busy in her, her life, but, you know, she's, she's into a lot of things. Cosmetics being one of those. She has a company called Lipmatic, and she's into the arts, you know. She's into all kinds of things. So she's busy, but we do get together. My son, not so much. He doesn't live as close to me as her, but it's always a great time either way, you know. Beautiful. Tell me about, you got to work with, with so many of the great hip-hop producers over the years. Just tell me about the differences between working with different people. Oh, man. Um, when I work with, say, uh, Dr. Dre, I hear he's, ha- he's, he's recovering right now. Um, prayers going out to him and his family. Working with Dr. Dre is someone who is right there, can create there on the spot. Um, and there's no telling how far it can go. He, you, you start with just one sound, and his, his, his ear is. He's like a. He's like he's putting the sounds in a movie. It's that's that's the way I see him doing hip hop, and he just loves the the most hardest shit, you know. And and he wants to make it happen as big as possible, make it sound as big as possible, as right as possible. Working with somebody like Havoc from Mob Deep, not only did I know him since we were little kids, you know, and we come from the same neighborhood, we're around the same age, and we grew up on the same sounds in the same city. So work with him is just really grimy stuff, um, hard stuff, and it's like his beats are talking to me. And I can hear, I could hear Havoc's spirit in the beat. And it's like, it makes you really want to get down on, on the beat. Um, working with somebody like um, Kanye, it's like, you know, this guy who can take, he could do, he could do electronic, he could do soul, he could do, he could do rock, he can do, and there's all his all with his spirit on it. And, you know, there's no there's no levels to how big it can go. It could just could go anywhere. Um so everyone has a different approach to it because we all love this culture. We all love this 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 art form. And we're all trying to make the stuff that blew our minds when we were kids, I guess. Do you remember the first time you heard an MC where you're like, whoa, this is something new and this is great. And you were like excited about like someone taking it to a new place that you hadn't heard before. Um, there was a couple of times, but the one that comes to mind right now is um, the educated rapper from UTFO on the song yeah. Roxanne, Roxanne. And I like that he was called the educated rapper. Uh, it was like he had this persona. He had the, He was a character almost, but... With, with rap music, you're using words. So to be educated means he's got a plethora of words. So when he was just like, you know, the way his flow was, and I, I said, wow, you know, you can, you could, there's many styles to this. But even the fat boys, even, even Cool Rock Ski and, 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 um, and my mans, you know what I'm saying? Um, they was like, they had me trying to rap like them. So it was everybody. Everybody at that time, you know, but uh, Shan, also from my neighborhood, who could tell a story and take you right in. You know, songs like Jane Stop This Crazy Thing, um, uh, The Bridge, that was our anthem, our neighborhood. 
Um, so, so many different artists would bring you something that was different, you know? Was the bridge the first battle record you heard? I think so. I think so. Well, there, there were a couple diss songs out at the time. I think there was a salt and pepper diss to, don't get me wrong. I'm my bad if I'm saying this wrong. It was all in fun back then, but it was like a, like Salt and Pepper, I think, had something against Dougie Fresh and the Get Fresh crew. And so I had heard, but nothing with the magnitude of the bridge, South Bronx, the bridge is over, kill that noise, nothing like that ever. And would you say that that was like two teams, like rival teams, sports teams? Definitely, definitely. I mean, it started with Roxanne Shante, you know, take my hat off to the queen there. She uh, went after UTFO and... You know, it was it was on. But yeah, there was my hood and it was the South Bronx. It was Queensbridge, South Bronx, Queens, Bronx. But the boroughs were all, they was all gunning for the top spot in New York. So you had the Brooklyn's in the house record. Um, you know, you had your you had your everybody, Kumo D in Harlem. Um, you had the Bronx, you had, you know, so everybody was just trying to be that number one that number one place. But it was always from a point of view of like out rapping the other. Yeah. In the early days, it never felt like there was any real beef. It was more like performance. Right. And it wasn't actually a fight. A fight would back then would mean you was the sore loser. You know, like not, back then it was like, who's really the best at this? A fight would just make, would mess the whole you, thing up. You weren't the best at this if you had a fight. Right. If you was that mad about it to fight, you lost. So you would have to show and prove with your with your talent back then. And that's that's what built that's what the legs of this thing is. Those guys who were comp- competing with each other. Um w- one of the most famous uh hip hop rivalries was between you and Jay back in the day. And um what did it feel like, uh, you know, being the subject when you were the subject of a of a diss record or a challenge? Was that just um, proof that you were the top guy? Was that the what was the feeling of that? Yeah, it was all of that, and it was like the you know, it just the art of MCing was right there on full display. It was like if you're in the rap game this can happen, a battle. And it was like, that's, this rap thing is real. Like a battle can really happen, you know? So I was honored to, to have that part of my life happen because that's how I saw the greats do it coming up. I saw some of the greats do it. It actually shed light on both of you. Like at the time, it felt like in the back and forth, it elevated everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's it, again, it's about the art of MCing. And when you're when you're trying to um make the best stuff you can make and you bump heads with another MC and then you guys have a a war or whatever, that's isn't that's that's what this art form was was since the beginning. Since Double Trouble and and Busy B and Cool Mo, you know. <laughs> but it that's what I like about hip hop compared to other genres is that they go at it in hip hop. You know, like really at it. Not to say that other rockers didn't go at it, other reggae artists didn't go at it, other crooners didn't go at it. But the the hip hop will always be around, I think, because of how competitive it is. When was the last time you were in um, Queensbridge? Um, I did my last, I did the Nasir album with Kanye. I did the party there. And then did the after party and the actual projects because we were under the bridge for the album release party and then went inside the projects where I went inside the projects and party hung out all night. Um, How did it feel? What, what were the memories that came up when you were there? I mean, I, I do it. I do it from time to time. So usually, I go there. Kids are not up. I go at night. 
and I hang with the fellas. We don't put it on camera. We don't tape it. But countless nights I've been there. Um, so it was just another night, but this night was great because underneath the bridge there is where those legendary artists would come to when I was a kid. And we kind of had it in the same area. So it was, I was like lifted up to another uh consciousness and everything a spiritual feeling happened i felt like i was doing what was right in, in the community for the art of it and for you know it's years later i've had parties everywhere for our release parties but to have one in my neighborhood you know for the nasir album was great and to to go hang out afterwards i'm seeing people um they got new names I still call them their old name. They got, <laughs> they got new names and stuff. You know, I remember when they were kids, but their name now is Knockout, you know what I'm saying, or, or something like that. Um, but, you know, most of the guys, I've known their moms, I've known their dads. Me and their parents are still cool. Y'all can smoke a blunt with their kid who's now grown up and, and, and then to go have a drink with their dad, you know, two steps away in the whole same neighborhood. So... And everybody's, you know, seeing people that are doing well for themselves, man. And that's the best, you know, because, I, I mean, people look at at, at me like, um, probably like, yo, he got out of here, but still comes back, you know? I have I have different things we do there. Summer camp I do out there and, and um, take the kids out and other things. Cool. In the early days, lyrically, you, you talked a lot about what was going on around you in the hood. And... How, as your life has developed and as you've changed your living conditions, how do you find what to write about? Like, where does the content come from of what you talk about? I knew years ago that, you know, moving away or wherever I was at, I had enough to write books. I had enough to write. Um, I could have left the neighborhood 14 and still had enough stuff because I had already been fed through what I, I saw at 14 and what I learned in school and and what I read at home and what I would love to watch on television. All of these things I'm watching growing up in New York, it gave me a piece of everything. So I wanted to write screenplays when I was young. So I was, I was writing screenplays or trying to... Um, preteen or just about, you know? So I was already kind of like a writer. That was my little hobby that nobody knew about. So I knew that I'd be able to do it. So it doesn't matter where I'm at, where I live, you know, although Wyoming was a, was a, was, was kind of tough for me. It was a great getaway to work on an Isaiah album, but that was, I wasn't prepared like to, for, for that. But, I still got it done, but I could do it anywhere. It's really a different world. Like growing up in New York and going to Wyoming, it's like, it's different. Right, right, definitely. Do, do songs ever come based on a concept first or is it usually based on lines? I like, I like when, when there's a concept before I even get started because I get the concept and then I'm like, I'm eager to get it done. I'm like, when am I going to go? When am I going to go in the studio? I can't wait to do this. I can't wait to get in there and do this song. Um, I write notes down in my phone. So when I'm in the studio, I could just look at my notes and kind of just close my eyes and just say it. And that's how a lot of stuff comes up now. I hear the music and as soon as I hear it, I just start, I start saying the first things that come to my head. I don't write it down. It's just because it's too quick. So you just say it. You know, you've been doing it so long. You just say it. And that's how it comes together for me now. So it sounds almost like you write it automatically. The track comes on. You just freestyle, essentially. And then do you go back and refine? I go back and refine. Sometimes it's not good. Sometimes I have to go back and write it. Start over. Um, a lot of times, thank you. A lot of times, though, um, it's good because, you know, if you're in a good mood or whatever the mood you are in, 
um, your energy's up and you want to lay down some stuff, or if you're in a melancholy type of mood, you might write something that's not the most hyper flow, but it still gives you, you put your spirit on it and you say what you need to say. Is there ever a concept that goes through a whole album or is it usually more song-based? I've done some concept albums like the Untitled album. Um, the recent album, King's Disease, um, it was just basically like, you know, I'm conscious now of all the things that we can um, do to hurt ourselves with uh, too much, with being excessive with. If you're going to have, if you're going to eat bad, it's all in moderation. You got to watch what's works for you and what doesn't work for you. So, you know, not just the health thing, you know, being it's all about, you know, a lot of us feel like we're kings. A lot of us ain't kings. A lot of us, just because you're a man don't make you a king, you know. I think king is, uh, there's been some terrible kings in recorded history also. But, um, you know, you have to like, in my from my perspective, you got to be a good guy. You know, so it's like taking care of yourself and those around you. How do you think you learned that? Because as you said, there are some bad kings. Like, how did you learn to be cool? <laughs> That's a good one there, right? Um, I think I think I learned a lot coming up. I think um, people, places, and, and, and situations. Just watching other people. Watching it. Life experiences where I, I saw myself doing things that wasn't right, corny, you know, coming up and I'm like mad at myself later. Like, you know, it's, I'm a teen and I'm learning and I think I know it all. And, I, you know, my mom used to tell me things and later I'm like, she was right. Damn. I still say it to this day to her, like she's not here, but I'm like, she was right about this and that. I shouldn't have trusted this. I shouldn't have did this. I should have did that. But just just being grateful that I'm here, like, you know, to to alive, to 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 been one of those guys to come from where I come from and to be here. Um, I see which people I see which people made mistakes. I see which people made mistakes, but it wasn't their fault, but they their heart was in it. So I still it's still honorable what they did. I start weighing things out. And trying to see what did I want for me and what did I want to give back. And I always wanted to be somebody that could help somebody here, help somebody there. And and just just because I want to see them uh, reach their full potential, because I think that's what we're supposed to do. So that's the most important thing. That was it for me. Beautiful. How has your relationship to hip hop music changed from... Being a kid to now, um, I don't keep up. I can't keep up with the music today like I could back then. At back then, everything that came out was exciting. Even the wax stuff, I would buy wax stuff sometimes and just stare at the albums and what label they were on and who produced this, and I would just want to understand it all. Now, nah, I'm like, nah. Sometimes now the things still hit you with that are like. Whoa, this is great. Yeah, yeah. And most of the times I don't know who made those records. You know, I'm, you know, when when, when the world was more normal, I was outside, I was at clubs, I was out parties, I was around and I'm hearing songs that normally I wouldn't know just being in my regular life, you know? It was just it was just songs I go, "What is that?" And I would forget to hit Shazam. You know? <laughs> so, um there's all kinds of songs, you know, that that hit me. I'm like, who is that guy? I like that guy. And as I'm starting to get into this guy, there's a whole new movement happening. And as I'm getting into this whole new movement, three more just started. So I figure I'll catch up to it when I get a chance. Yeah. It's an exciting time when there's so much new stuff. What were you thinking working on It's Yours with Teela Rock? I think the main purpose of it was the feeling of of the club, like what DJs were doing and drum machines and sort of the feeling of the hip-hop club, which I relate to what you experienced at the parks, probably very similar. 
but the records that were coming out at that time didn't sound like that at all. So It's Yours was really just like, it was almost like a documentary of what the club really felt like. Right, right. Versus the records made by professionals who didn't really know what happened in the club. That was totally the sound. And and Teela Rock's rhyme schemes was crazy. What I always wanted an 808, Roland 808, or 909. Which one did you use on that? That was an 808. The 909's a little more like... Um, more like Euro dancey. It's tight. It's like a tighter sound, whereas the 808's more booming. And you were planning on doing a whole Tila Rock album, or you don't know? Pro- probably. I mean, it was so early. In those days, really, all there were were singles. Hardly anyone had albums. So all there really were were 12 inches. And I remember Russell said, you know, I think this is going to be, you know, albums is where it's at. And I didn't, I didn't know that albums, you know, I grew up buying albums because I liked rock music, but it almost felt like what made hip hop hip hop at that time were 12 inches, you know, 12 inch singles. Right. So I just thought it was a 12 inch single world. Uh, So I wasn't thinking so much about albums at that time. Right. So with, uh, with Walk This Way, (laughs) so you knew that at this point, Run DMC had become the biggest, instantly the biggest rap group in the world. Um, they're still, to me, the, the biggest, best rap group that ever happened to hip-hop. Um, you knew that with Aerosmith, that they had went as high as they could go, and Run DMC and rap had went as high as they can go, and they needed to merge, or what? Nothing like that. <laughs> Nothing like that. It was, we'd pretty much finished the album without Walk This Way on it. And I remember I was at a, a dinner in California with a a guy from a big record company who was like trying to convince us to come work with their record company. And he said, how can you explain the success of this music? How can you explain the success of, of rap? It's not even music. Like this isn't music. And I started thinking, it's like, this guy's being nice to me. You know what I mean? He's 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 trying to invite me in and he's telling me hip hop isn't music as far as he can hear. So I I see that there's this big disconnect between the people who are who feel hip hop and the people who don't understand it at all. And I was looking for something to bridge that gap. And because I started thinking about there there are these records that are not so far off like you, you mentioned one earlier. You mentioned a record earlier that you like. Well, this is sort of a precursor to hip hop records, and like you could see, it's like, oh, this is like the roots of hip hop in this. So I just started thinking about records that were like rap-like vocals that somebody who didn't understand rap music would understand. And the first song that I thought of was "Walk This Way" because like the verses of "Walk This Way" are essentially rhyme scheme verses but people know it as a rock song. So it was more as a bridging that gap so that people could see, oh, this isn't, I thought it was more different than it is. It's like, this is something that's always been part of the language. It's just a part of the language. It's, it made it like rock and rap are the same. They are, they are the same. Yes. And, and they, and they're, the roots are really similar. It's like it's not so far different. Right, right. So that was, that was the purpose of it. it. It really was just to like, and had, it, had, it, had the person not said that to me, I wouldn't have felt like there was this mission. You know, I had this mission of like, people are missing what this is. There has to be a way to explain what it is, just musically. You did that. <laughs> you did that. Thank you for that. My pleasure. Man, it's been a pleasure. Same. Love. Speak to you soon, sir. Love. Thanks to Nas for taking Rick back to the Queensbridge of the 80s and 90s and reminiscing about the early days of hip-hop. You can hear all of our favorite Nas songs on our playlist at brokenrecordpodcast.com. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast where you can find extended cuts of new and old episodes. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Martin Gonzalez, 
Eric Sandler, and our intern Jennifer Sanchez. With engineering help from Nick Chafee, and is executive produced by Mia LaBelle. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. And if you like Broken Record, please remember to share, rate, and review our show on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Peace. Thanks again to our friends over at Broken Record for that lovely interview with rapper and hip-hop legend Nas. You know what I love about Nas is that he really has stayed true to his vision. He really didn't change to fit any commercial mold. I just loved this interview. You can listen to more episodes like this one of Broken Record wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, additional production and editing was done by Asia Drain and Anjali Sastri Kerbachak. Of course, come back here for more It's Been a Minute on Friday. And remember, we always want to hear the best thing that happened to you all week. Record yourself and email the file to us at ibam at npr.org. That's ibam at npr.org. All right. Until Friday, thanks for listening. I'm Jasmine Garst. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.